Good afternoon. My name is Nathan Buznitz. This seminar is titled Long Before Luther, trying to answer the question in an admittedly overview fashion, where was the gospel prior to the Reformation? And uh, in this seminar, we'll be kind of hitting the 30,000-foot level. And if you want to go in a little bit deeper, uh, the conference, I think it was Moody Publishers, was gracious enough to include the book that I put together on this topic in your free book box. So you can go into this subject in a lot more detail if you want to with that book, which I don't have to try to sell you because you've all gotten a free coffee. So, <clears throat> so that's good. I love this topic and I love thinking about church history. It's the topic that I have the privilege of teaching here at the Master's Seminary. And so this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because it is obviously the gospel is near and dear to my heart as I know that it is to yours as well. But when we think about the topic of church history, I here at the seminary, we split our church history classes into two major sections. One begins on the day of Pentecost and then goes through the 15th century. The other begins with the Reformation and then goes through the modern age. And it was a challenge for me to think about how to teach that first class, the pre-Reformation church history class, if we can't find the gospel in pre-Reformation church history, which of course I know you know is not the case, that the gospel is there. But where is it? Where is the gospel prior to the Reformation? And last year, of course, 2017, it was the high point for all of us who teach church history. I had people tell me this is the peak. It's all downhill from here. It was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And of course, that's a great peak. And I'm fine with knowing that it's all downhill from here. But in our celebration as Protestant evangelicals, of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, in making much of the Reformation and in making much of the recovery of the gospel at the Reformation, one thing I noticed was that it seemed to me that some Protestant evangelicals were almost acting as if prior to the Reformation, there was no gospel witness whatsoever. And uh, this study for me goes back a number of years in terms of wanting to see where was the gospel prior to the Reformation. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. That is what this book that uh, Moody graciously published for me is all about. And so that's what this seminar is about this afternoon. And if at this point you feel like this isn't the seminar I wanted to go to, there's still time to go to a different seminar. So I just want to make sure we all know where we're at and that there's no bait and switch happening here. Now, having said that, I'm going to go to the next slide, and then some of you are going to wish that you had left. <laughs> in order to, I am a professor, yes, but in order to illustrate this point, I'm going to start with an introductory quiz. Now, the good thing is that you are saved by grace through faith alone and not on the basis of how you do on this quiz. And not only that, but this quiz is not for a grade and it has nothing to do with being charged anything extra here at the Shepherds Conference, okay? This is simply a tool that I want to use to illustrate the fact that there are men 
theologians, church leaders in pre-Reformation church history who talk about the gospel and in specific justification by grace alone through faith alone, sola gratia, sola fide, prior to the Reformation. In order to illustrate that, I'm going to give you a seven-question quiz. This quiz consists of seven quotes. Your job is simple. All you have to do is indicate by a raise of your hand whether or not you think that this quote, whatever's on the screen, comes from either pre-Reformation church history or Reformation or post-Reformation church history, okay? So this is a little bit of group interaction, and I know some of you are sitting there going, I don't like group interaction, but just play along for fun, okay? (laughs) Quote number one. Faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. Faith it is that brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. Faith alone makes someone just. All right, so here's the big test of everyone's personal comfort zone. How many of you think that this came from before the Reformation? Raise your hand. How many of you think this came from after the Reformation? or during the Reformation? And how many of you are unwilling to play? (laughs) Okay. Uh, This comes from the Reformation. I had to start with a reformer so that you knew. I wanted you to know what a reformer sounds like when they talk about justification by faith. And so this comes from Martin Luther. So we had to have a test so that you would know how to identify somebody who sounds like a reformer. Question number two, quote number two, it is determined by God that whoever believes in Christ shall be saved and have forgiveness of sins, not through works, but through faith alone without merit. Be saved, not by works, but through faith alone, without merit. Pre-Reformation? Reformation or post-Reformation? Yeah, this is definitely pre-Reformation. So this is from a Western church commentator in the fourth century. His name is Ambrosiaster. That's actually not his name. Just for a long time, church historians thought that the guy who wrote these commentaries on Paul's epistles was Ambrose. And then they realized later that it's not Ambrose. So what do we call an anonymous guy we used to think was Ambrose? We call him Ambrosiaster. (laughs) The guy we used to think was Ambrose. Uh, But Ambrosiaster, in his commentaries on Paul's epistles, this is really cool, is writing in Latin because he's a Western church father. So when it says faith alone there, the actual phrase in the original is sola fide. All right, number three in our quiz. Faith is reckoned as righteousness to the believer independent of any righteous actions. What righteousness is this? It is the righteousness of faith preceded by no good works, but with good works as its consequence. So the root of our justification is faith alone, but the fruit or evidence is seen in a transformed life. What do you guys think? Pre-Reformation? Reformation, post-Reformation? All right, this is pre-Reformation. This comes from Augustine. From Augustine, who, of, or if you want to say Augustine, uh, if you're from Florida or you just want to pronounce it that way, that's fine. Um, but uh, yes, 
Augustine, who of course is the most influential of all of the church fathers on the reformers themselves, and in his work on the spirit and the letter really set forth a number of incredibly important soteriological principles that influenced both Luther and Calvin. All right, number four in our quiz. God's plan of salvation excludes all our works, not of works, lest any man should boast. It comes to us upon the footing of grace, pure grace alone. So there we have that famous Reformation phrase, grace alone. What do you think? Pre-Reformation? Reformation, post-Reformation? All right, yes, this is post-Reformation. This is Charles Spurgeon. I know some of you think he's a church father, but he's technically not. (laughs) But of course, the reason I include someone like Spurgeon is because I want you to see that this theme transcends the Reformation, and there's testimony for it both after and before. All right, number five. There's seven of these, so we're here on number five. No one can embrace the grace of the gospel without removing himself from the errors of his past life into the right way and applying his whole effort to the practice of repentance. Can true repentance stand apart from faith? Not at all, but even though they cannot be separated, they ought to be distinguished. So here we have an author saying that true genuine faith must be a repentant faith. And even though repentance is distinct from faith, the two are inseparable because justification always coincides with the work of regeneration. All right, so what do you think? Pre-Reformation? Reformation or post-Reformation? Yeah, this one comes from John Calvin. And the reason I include this in our little quiz is because I want you to understand that for the Reformers, although they insisted that we are saved by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, based on the finished work of Christ alone, solus Christus, so that all of the glory goes to God alone, soli deo gloria. And of course, this is the gospel that is found in scripture alone, sola scriptura. Even though they emphasize faith alone, the faith that they were saying we are justified through is a repentant faith. They did not teach what we might call today a form of easy believism. Just want to make sure that you understand that as we talk about what the reformers believed. Number six, this is one of my favorites. To have brought humanity more senseless than stones to the dignity of angels simply through mere words and faith alone without any hard work is indeed a rich and glorious mystery. It is just as if one were to take a dog consumed with hunger and disease, foul and loathsome to see, unable to move and lying passed out and make him all at once into a human being and to display him upon the royal throne. So I like this one because it sort of reminds me of what a youth pastor might use to explain to a group of students what salvation is like. You were like dead dogs and God turned you into royal princes and he did it all not because of anything that you've done, rather it's his gift received through faith alone. So what do you think? Pre-Reformation? Reformation or post-Reformation? This is John Chrysostom. He was a late fourth, early fifth century 
really Bible expositor, one of the early Christian expositors, a preacher from Antioch. And uh, what's cool about John Chrysostom, I'll just tell you a little story about Chrysostom. And by the way, I certainly don't mind if you guys take photos of all of these slides. I'm happy to send you the presentation. But in this book, at the end, there's an appendix of a hundred quotes like this. All of the quotes in today's presentation are in this book. So you have this with all of the documentation for it as well. So if that helps you before you get writer's cramp trying to put everything down or run out of room on your phone, um, just so you know it's there. Okay. Um, I had the opportunity a couple of summers ago, I was teaching a church history class here at the seminary and one of the men in my class, he came to me after class one day and he said, hey, I have a Roman Catholic relative, actually uh, a relative of mine who's studying to become a Roman Catholic priest and he's visiting me and he's wondering if he can come to our church history class tomorrow. And our summer church history class, like five hours a day for a shortened period of time. And I thought, sure, of course, bring your friend. And we were talking through the fourth century fathers at the time, and John Chrysostom was one of them. And so I, I put together an addendum in the notes where Chrysostom probably says things like this about three dozen times. And I put together quote after quote after quote after quote, emphasizing sola fide. And I let John Chrysostom be my platform for speaking about the gospel, knowing that this young Roman Catholic man was sitting in the class. Very interesting. We had a very interesting conversation after that. Oh. <laughs> You guys saw it. I gave it away, didn't I? Oh, dear. Well, what I normally do is I use this one as my last slide, and I say this is the all or nothing one. But somehow I got so excited talking about John Chrysostom that I um, hit my clicker, I think. Um, well, as you saw, this is John MacArthur. Um, so the last one, this man, the publican in Luke 16... He was saved by, he was uh, justified without any of those things because it was solely on the basis of faith, and I gave away my gag. But anyway, that's okay. Normally what I do is I have everybody guess on this one, and at the end they roar with laughter because they see that it's John MacArthur. Didn't work this time. Okay. <laughs> the point is this. Now, granted, I only had, I think, four of those that were pre-Reformation, but from those quotes, you can't tell whether it's pre-Reformation, Reformation, or post-Reformation. And the reason you can't tell is because there is a witness to the gospel in pre-Reformation church history, and it's a much louder witness than most evangelical Protestants are typically led to believe because we generally have bought the lie that although the Bible belongs to us, and of course it does, that's not the lie part, that somehow church history belongs to the Catholics and the Orthodox. That's the part that's inaccurate. As true believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, church history is our history. It belongs to us. And it's not just the fourth quarter of church history that belongs to us. It's the entirety of church history, all 2,000 years, not just the most recent 500. Is that a question? Yes, sir. How much of 
Yeah, in terms of your typical Roman Catholic layperson, I think it would depend a little bit on what part of the world you're in, because Roman Catholicism looks different in different parts of the world. But my experience here in the U.S. has been that most Roman Catholic churchgoers, if you were to ask them sort of the typical of question, I think it was uh, evangelism explosion or one of those curriculum that made this question popular. If you were to stand before God today and he were to ask you why you should be let into heaven, what would you say? I think the typical answer that they would give is, well, I've been a good Catholic. And then they would expect to go to purgatory for an extended period of time in which all all of the things that they hadn't done penance for in this life would be purified, and finally they would reach some point at which they would be good enough to be accepted into heaven. So how much of this does the average lay Catholic know? Probably not much, but they don't know much about what the Roman Catholic Church actually teaches. They don't know much about what the Bible says, and they don't know much about their own history other than that they believe they will get to heaven by being a good Catholic. Are you asking about the average lay Catholic in the medieval period or in the modern period? No, I think you're absolutely right. And that's where we as those who know the gospel as witnesses to the truth have an opportunity. And the opportunity that's before us is to open the word of God with our Catholic friends and relatives and neighbors and to take them to places like Ephesians 2 and Luke 18 and Titus 3 and to show them that we are saved not on the basis of works, but only because of the finished work of Christ through faith in him. And that's an important thing that you bring up that I want to just say as a caveat on this is I'm presenting this today as a polemic for those of us who know the gospel so that we'll be encouraged when we see that there were witnesses to the gospel throughout church history. But this would not be my starting point for witnessing to a Roman Catholic because the power of the gospel is not in church history, it's in the word of God. So... But great question. Uh, let me go on, and then at the end, I'll leave some time for questions. So I love the interaction. Uh, again, I teach seminary, so answering and asking questions, this is all part of what I love to do, but I will not get through my material if I take too long with questions. So thank you so much, and we'll come back to questions at the end. The Gospel and the Reformation. Uh, the medieval Catholic view of the gospel insisted on earning enough righteousness to gain God's favor, and that was through the sacramental system. It was a synergistic approach in which God, through his grace, puts someone in a position where they can then earn their salvation. That was the whole point. And uh, the reformers said, no, that's not correct. They recognized that such a standard was impossible to achieve, no matter how hard they tried. And I'm assuming you men know Luther's testimony because, again, last year was the 500th anniversary. Probably in October, you preached something about the Reformation just to let your people know that there's a reason kids all over America dress up and go door to door asking for candy, trick or treatise, right? It's all about the Reformation. That's Reformation Day. Okay. 
Uh, Martin Luther, as a young man, uh, 1505, July, is walking through a German forest on his way home from law school. A thunderstorm suddenly comes up, and a bolt of lightning hits a tree not far from where Luther was walking. He thought he was going to die, and in typical Roman Catholic fashion, he cries out in that moment, Saint Anne, spare me, and I will become a monk. Interestingly, we know from other literature, from Erasmus and others, that a lot of Roman Catholics at that time made a lot of promises in moments of desperation that they never kept once the danger had passed. But Luther kept his promise. And 15 days later, in July of 1505, he joined the Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt, Germany. It was the fear of death that prompted him to become a monk. And it was the fear of God's wrath that continued to haunt him even after he had become a monk. And for the next 10 years, at least, he spent his time desperately trying to earn God's favor, trying to be good enough to be acceptable in God's sight. Luther would practice all sorts of extreme penance. He would starve himself for long periods of time, damaged his health for the rest of his life. As a result, he would lay on the cold floors without any blankets in the middle of winter there in Germany, almost freezing to death, trying to atone for his sins. He would go meet with his confessor for so long and so often that his confessor got sick of it and told him not to come back unless he committed a major sin. Uh, <laughs> His confessor's name was, this is just for free, Johann von Staupitz. And I always tell my students they can remember it because he kept telling Luther to Staupitz. Yeah. <laughs> Stop coming back. You guys know the story. Again, uh, Luther later in his life recounts the fact that he actually got to the point where he says he came to hate the phrase, the righteousness of God. And he hated that phrase because all he saw in that phrase was God's perfect standard, which he knew he could never meet, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's standard is perfection. Sinners cannot meet that standard. Luther is aware of his sinfulness and the harder he tries in his own self-effort to meet God's perfect standard, the more discouraged he becomes. And it's not until years later... We call this the tower experience of 1515, but there's even a little bit of debate among historians as to when Luther fully understood the gospel, but it was as he was lecturing through the book of Psalms and the book of Romans and the book of Galatians that Luther came to understand that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17, not only refers to God's perfect standard, but it also encompasses the righteous provision of God through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer. And when Luther came to understand that, Luther understood grace for the first time that he could be declared righteous, not on the basis of his own works, but on the basis of the finished work of Christ. And in that moment, he discovered the gospel and the Holy Spirit transformed his life. And Luther, in his own words, said it this way, and this is a famous quote, but he said, at last. And that at last encompasses at least, as I said, a dozen or, well, at least a decade, maybe a dozen years 
But at last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. And then he says, here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. And one of the things I love about this quote, and we could talk about Zwingli, we could talk about Calvin, Knox, Cranmer, whoever your favorite reformer is, Tyndale. These men experienced a personal reformation before they were ever part of what we call the Protestant Reformation. This work of God in the 16th century, this great revival was the result of the Holy Spirit transforming individual lives through the scriptures, his illuminating work. They saw the gospel in scripture, the spirit transforms their hearts, and then they began to preach with conviction. And as they preached the word of the gospel, the Holy Spirit continued to do that work in thousands and then tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of lives. And the result is what we call reformation. So the the key to Reformation in the 16th century, it's the same as the key to Reformation today or revival, whatever term you want to use, is the faithful preaching of the gospel, which the Holy Spirit then uses to open blind eyes and to revive dead hearts. Now, the five solas of the Reformation, which we've already mentioned this morning, or I guess this afternoon, really all flow out of a commitment to Christ as the head of the church The reformers were convinced that Christ alone is the head of the church, not the Pope. If Christ is the head of the church and not the Pope, then that means that the word of Christ is the authority for the church and not the word or the teachings or traditions of the Pope or the magisterium of the Catholic system. And if the word of Christ alone is the authority for the church, then the gospel that is presented on the pages of scripture is the true gospel, not the sacramental synergistic system of Roman Catholic traditionalism. And of course, if the gospel of scripture is the true gospel, and it is a gospel of grace alone through faith alone, based on the finished work of Christ alone, then none of the credit goes to me. All of the credit must go only to God, soli deo gloria, glory be to God alone. So all five of those solas fit together around a commitment to the lordship of Christ the authority of scripture, and the purity of the gospel itself. Now, key question, and we're finally getting to the question we're supposed to be answering this afternoon. Was the Reformation understanding of the gospel some sort of 16th century invention? And this is the typical Roman Catholic claim that Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, whoever your favorite reformer is, that the reformers invented something new in the 16th century. And unfortunately, there are some broader Protestant scholars who have made similar claims. And the book that I wrote, and of course, this lecture today is a response to that to say, no, this is not the invention of something new. This is the recovery of something very old. And of course, the authority for what we believe and why we believe it comes from Scripture. This is the biblical gospel. But not only that, we do see evidence for this throughout the history of the church. Uh, It was back in 2007 
2007, I believe it was 2007, that uh, Francis Beckwith was the president of the Evangelical Society, Evangelical Theological Society, ETS. And halfway through his presidency of ETS, he resigned his presidency and uh, declared that he was, quote unquote, going home to Rome. He had been raised in a Roman Catholic environment, and he wanted to rejoin the Catholic Church. Sent shockwaves throughout evangelicalism, because why was one of evangelicalism's brightest scholars going back to Catholicism? In his explanation, Francis Beckwith said this. He said, the early church is more Catholic than Protestant. Catholics have more explanatory power to account for both all the biblical texts on justification as well as the church's historical understanding of salvation prior to the Reformation all the way back to the ancient church of the first few centuries. That was his claim. Uh, When Beckwith released this, uh, at the time, there were a few of us here on the church staff who responded on a blog that we did. And there was a Roman Catholic gentleman who never gave us his last name, but his name was Jerry. And uh, we began to interact with him in the comment section on this particular topic. And Jerry made this claim. He said, as far as Protestant Christianity goes, it did not exist until the 1500s. I challenge anyone to find the current Protestant beliefs and practices before the 1500s. And it it was actually this interchange in May of 2007 that sort of launched me on this path of wanting to answer that challenge. And it was a seven-day discussion that we had on the blog. Uh, We went back and forth. We tried to be very gracious, but we were interacting with Jerry's uh, comments on this. And specifically, he was targeting sola scriptura and sola fide. And of course, today we're talking specifically about the sola fide portion of that. But it was really interesting to me to begin to unearth all of this amazing testimony to the truth of the gospel from pre-Reformation writers. And even though by the end of this, Jerry didn't seem to change his mind, I was more than ever convinced that there is a testimony to the gospel in pre-Reformation church history. Now, I teach church history here at the seminary, as I've said, and I usually begin every semester by telling the men, this class is not the most important class you will take in seminary. In fact, it may be one of the least important because it is not directly tied to learning about the Bible. The Bible is the authority for why we do what we do and for what we believe. And I know that you men know that. This lecture would not be complete if we didn't start with the authoritative basis for why we understand the gospel to be a gospel of justification by grace alone through faith alone. So where in scripture could we go to find or to defend this doctrine? And again, if I was in conversation with a Roman Catholic on this topic, I would not start with the church fathers or medieval scholars or anyone in church history. I would start with the biblical witness. Um, Just real quickly, Luke 18 is a great place, the Pharisee and the tax collector, where Jesus says of the tax collector, this man went home justified, but the man did nothing other than cry out for mercy. Romans 3, 4, and 5, wonderful passages of scripture in which it is clear that we are not saved through works, but only through faith. And even the example of Abraham is one who was credited with righteousness 
a righteousness that was given to him on the basis of faith. Galatians 3.8, similar. In fact, the book of Galatians was Martin Luther's favorite book because the gospel is so clear in the book of Galatians. Uh, probably most famous of all, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, that we are not saved on the basis of works, lest anyone should boast. Even a few verses earlier, we are saved through faith alone. Philippians 3, 8 and 9, we are not saved on the basis of anything that we have done, but on the basis of a righteousness that comes through faith. Titus 3, 5 and 7, again, not on the basis of the deeds that we have done. Scripture repeatedly establishes the truth that our righteous standing before God is not based on good works. And there would be many other scriptures that we could talk about when we get into some of the nuances of what sola fide means. But for the sake of time this afternoon, we're going to have to just go quickly through this. One of my favorite passages of scripture when it comes to this topic is to look at Acts 13, 14, and 15, which is the story in the book of Acts, the account of Paul's first missionary journey, and then the Jerusalem council to follow. And you'll remember on Paul's first missionary journey, he and Barnabas go first to the uh, island of Crete, and then they make their way to um, Pamphylia, and then to Pisidian Antioch, and it's there in Antioch of Pisidia that Paul preaches this amazing message in Acts chapter 13. And in verses 38 and 39, after he goes through all of the historical facts of the gospel, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again according to the scriptures, he gets here in verses 38 and 39 to these statements. He says to this crowd in the synagogue, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And I use the New King James Version there because it, I think, best translates the Greek word dikeau, which means justify. Whereas other versions like the NAS uses the word liberate and doesn't quite convey what's actually happening there. So Paul says, look, through the death of Christ, through faith in Christ, whoever believes in him, faith, will have two things. The forgiveness of sins, that's the removal of your debt, and you'll be justified in a way that the law could not justify you, which is that you are declared righteous, not on the basis of law keeping, but on the basis of what Christ has done. So this is Paul's gospel on his first missionary journey, Acts 13, you are forgiven by faith in Christ and you are justified by grace through faith in Christ. Now in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas continue on. They go to places like Lystra and Derby. Paul gets stoned and left for dead. What's amazing to me in Acts 14 is that if you look at a map, Paul could have just kept going around to Tarsus and then back home, but actually he turned back at Derby and went back through all of those same churches a second time in order to establish the church and to train up elders in every city, which is just amazing. Paul finally gets back to Antioch in Syria, which is the home base. And then Acts 15, we find out that there are men who have come down 
from Judea who want to pervert the gospel. And uh, so the perversion of the gospel in Acts 15, one to five, here's verse one and then verse five, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here we're introduced to a group of false teachers that become known as the Judaizers. And what they are insisting on is that in order to be a Christian, faith alone is not enough. You must have faith, sure, but in addition to faith, you must also be circumcised and keep the law. And Paul, of course, responds to them with all of the understandable angst and uh, this leads to then the uh, meeting of the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem, what we call the Jerusalem Council. But really, this is the first church council. That's what I tell the guys in my class. I know the first church council for the test is the Council of Nicaea, but the real first church council is this council here in Acts 15, when the very nature of the gospel itself was at stake. Is it a gospel of grace alone through faith alone? That's Paul's gospel. Or is it a gospel of faith plus works? Faith plus circumcision plus keeping the law of Moses. And so here then we have thirdly, the preservation of the true gospel. And I love, in fact, I think the book of Galatians in Galatians chapter two is the same account as what is happening in Acts 15. And there Paul says very clearly in Galatians two that I was meeting with Peter and John and James in order to protect the gospel that I had preached among you. So here in Acts 15, seven to 11, Peter stands up at the Jerusalem council and I love how Peter affirms the gospel that Paul had been preaching. Brethren, you know that in the early day, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel. So it's the gospel that's being addressed. And they would believe and God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we as Jewish people are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they as Gentiles are also. So here you have Peter talking about the gospel and he says their hearts are cleansed by faith and they are saved by grace. So the results of the first church council are that the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is affirmed as the true gospel. The gospel that Paul had been preaching was not preached in vain. It was in fact the true gospel. And so then just a short time later, Paul hears that these Judaizers are showing up at some of those churches that he planted on his first missionary journey. And what does he do? He writes them a letter. And in that letter, what does he say? He says, I cannot believe that you guys are so quickly abandoning the true gospel for a gospel of faith plus circumcision plus works. He actually says it a lot more strongly than that, right? Where he says that if anyone preaches to you, even if it were an angel from heaven, some other gospel than what we had originally preached to you, he would be accursed. 
And then we see this as a theme throughout all of Paul's writings. Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8.9, by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Philippians 3.8.9, we do not rest on a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Titus 3, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. So, the biblical testimony is absolutely clear. And I know, again, you guys didn't come here necessarily to hear me say that, but I can't in good conscience just jump into the church fathers without starting with the authoritative basis for why we believe what we believe. I think it would be misleading and actually contrary to the very principle of sola scriptura if I was like, we believe this because of the church fathers. That wouldn't make any sense. So I know we're all on the same page on the biblical testimony to the truth of the gospel. Having said that, we are now in a place where we can look at some of the early church history. And again, uh, in the book that you got in your book box, there are a hundred of these quotes. Now, I'm not going to go through a hundred quotes this afternoon. That would be painful for all of you. I tricked you at the beginning by going through seven and you thought it was a game. I was just reading quotes to you. Um, we called it a quiz just to make it interesting. I'm going to read seven more from the early church fathers, and then I'm going to read seven more from Augustine through the medieval theologians. So you have to sit there and listen to 14. But I think these are really, really cool. Uh, of course, I think that I teach church history, but I think these are fascinating. They're so cool because, and again, it's not about these men it's about the truth that they are affirming. And when you say, wow, that sounds so much like what we believe, the reason why is because these men were going to the same texts that you and I would go to, reading the same Bible, and as a result, coming to the same conclusions. So in that sense, these testimonies from church history actually do affirm sola scriptura, because these men are simply echoing what they see on the pages of scripture. All right, so let me start with the first seven. Let me start with Clement of Rome. Uh, Clement of Rome was a contemporary of the apostle John in ministry. He actually ministered as the bishop or the head pastor, the episcopos of the church in Rome from about 90 to about 100 in the first century. So he's really, really, really early, and there's some scholars who even think he may have been the Clement who's mentioned in Philippians chapter 4 by the Apostle Paul, but we don't know for sure. Um, from a Roman Catholic perspective, Clement is the fourth pope. From a non-Roman Catholic perspective, Clement is just a guy who happened to be the pastor of Rome in the last decade of the first century. He's not the first or the fourth pope, but in any case... He said this, this is in chapter 32 of his epistle. He said, and we Christians being called by his will in Christ Jesus 
are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning Almighty God has justified all men to whom be glory forever and ever. And and what's actually cool in the context is he's just been talking about the patriarchs and he's been talking about how the patriarchs like Abraham were justified by faith. Same argument that Paul uses in Romans chapter four. And here we have Clement, the fourth Pope, saying we are not justified by five things, our wisdom, our understanding, our godliness, our works, or our holiness. And so even though he doesn't use the word alone in this quote, it's very clear that the faith that he's talking about is faith alone because it's devoid of any of those five other categories. And so it, it is kind of fun if you do talk to a Roman Catholic about these things to say, hey, the fourth pope was a Protestant. <laughs> and I actually remember I said that once when uh, doc, I was... Uh, in the company of Dr. Sproul, and I made that comment, and Dr. Sproul's response was to say, well, the first pope was also a Protestant, Uh, reference to Peter, and uh, I thought that was a really good comeback. Uh, Polycarp, another really early guy, and if you, I'm assuming you've figured this out by now, but the numbers in parentheses are the estimated dates of their life, so you can see how early they were. Polycarp, we believe, was a disciple of the Apostle John. And here we have Polycarp writing in an epistle to the Philippians. He says, Even without seeing Christ, you believe in him with an inexpressible and glorious joy that many long to experience. For you know that you have been saved by a gracious gift, not from works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Sounds very similar to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, here from Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians. Uh, One of my favorites, uh, they're all my favorites, right? It's hard to pick, but one of my favorites is from the anonymous epistle to Diognetus, or Diognetus, sometimes it's pronounced that way. And in this epistle, this is written by a Christian to an unbeliever who is actually in the government, and it's a gospel tract from the second century. It's beautiful. And it has one of the clearest statements in all of church history about the, what we would call the great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5, that our sin is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. Listen to this. God gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immoral, the immortal, get that one right, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable operation, O benefit surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. I love that. I mean, Luther talks about the sweet exchange. And when Luther talked about that, this document hadn't even been discovered by archaeologists. So Luther wasn't getting that from this. He was getting it from 2 Corinthians 5, 
which is where I'm assuming this author was getting it as well. Hillary says it disturbed. Uh, Hillary of Portier actually uh, wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew in which he uses the phrase faith justifies some two dozen times. So this is just one of those examples. It disturbed the scribes that the sin was forgiven or that sin was forgiven by a man for they considered that Jesus Christ was only a man and that sin was forgiven by him whereas the law was not able to absolve it since faith alone justifies. So here you have him talking about the story in which Jesus forgave the sins of this man and the Pharisees were incensed. And Hillary makes the point, well, faith alone is what justifies. Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century is talking about how you can't boast in your salvation because you didn't do anything. Because you didn't do anything, you have no reason to boast. This is perfect and pure boasting, he says, when one is not proud on account of his own righteousness, but knows that he is indeed unworthy of the true righteousness and is justified solely by faith in Christ. And Paul boasts that he despises his own righteousness, seeking that righteousness that is on account of Christ, which is the righteousness of God by faith. And then we have Ambrosiaster. We talked about Ambrosiaster already, this Latin commentator in the fourth century who just look at the underlying portions there, no one is justified before God except by faith. And then below that, they are justified before God by faith alone. And that faith alone there again is sola fide in the original commentary. John Chrysostom, famous preacher. I love this. He says, as people on receiving some great good ask themselves if it is not a dream because they don't believe it, so it is with respect to the gifts of God. In other words, some things seem too good to be true. And certainly salvation seems too good to be true. And Chrysostom goes on, he said, what, what is it that makes it so unbelievable, so incredible? What, what is it that makes it seem too good to be true? that those who were enemies and sinners justified by neither the law nor works should immediately through faith alone be advanced to the highest favor. And then he goes on to say, as the Jews were chiefly attracted by this, in other words, the idea that you had to do some works or law keeping to be justified, Paul persuades them not to listen to the law since they could not attain salvation by it without faith. Against this, he contends, for it seemed to them incredible that a person who had misspent all his former life in vain and wicked actions should afterwards be saved by his faith alone. And on this account, Paul says, it is a saying to be believed. And that's from, that's from a chapter, a commentary on a chapter where you might not immediately think to go to defend sola fide. First uh, Timothy chapter one uh, is where Chrysostom is making that comment. So that's our first seven. Wasn't too painful, I hope. I, the point is this, and I say this often when I run through series of quotes for guys, I'm not expecting anyone here to remember every name or every detail. You guys aren't in my classes, so you don't have to take a test at the end of all of this. What I hope you get out of this is the affirmation that comes, the confidence that comes from seeing man after man after man saying what you and I believe and teach and 
really affirming for us what we know to be true from what Scripture teaches. And I use the word affirm because, again, church history is not our authority, but it is affirming to see this common testimony throughout the centuries and throughout the ages. Now, what about Augustine and the guys who came after Augustine? Now, Augustine is admittedly complex, and I go into Augustine in great detail in the book. I'm not going to do that today. I'm simply going to read one quote from Augustine, and that's this, where he asks, what is grace? Well, grace is that which is freely given. Given, not paid. If it were due, wages would be given, but grace would not be bestowed. But having obtained that grace by faith, you will be just or righteous by faith, for the just lives by faith. And Augustine's point here is, and he's going through the book of Romans, his point is, if you receive it as a wage, it's something you work for, but if you receive it as a gift, it's something you did not deserve. And Augustine will go on to say, salvation is a gift received on the basis of faith, not a wage received on the basis of works. What about after Augustine? Uh, this is one of Augustine's students uh, in the sense that he was an Augustinian theologian, Prosper of Aquitaine. I love what Prosper says here because he says, look, you cannot do anything so bad to be outside the reach of God's grace. But at the same time, you could never do anything so good as to be deserving of God's grace. He says, just as there are no crimes so detestable that they can prevent the gift of grace, so too there can be no works so eminent that they are given or owed in deserved judgment uh, that which is freely given. In other words, you can't do anything so good as to earn the gift of God's grace. And he goes on to talk about how salvation is something you could never earn. Theodore of Cyrus, all we bring to grace is our faith. And then he goes on to talk about how even faith is not a work, but faith is in itself a gift. And so even the faith that we bring is not something we can take credit for because it in and of itself is a gift of God's grace. And then he goes on to say, even when we have come to believe, God did not require of us purity of life, but approving mere faith, God bestowed on us forgiveness of sins. The Venerable Bede, father of English church history, talks about how the gift of justification comes only from faith, underlined portion there. And then we have three more. So we're zipping through these. Uh, but I have to set this one up just a little bit. Uh, this is a... This is a short treatise, I guess is the right word, a short document that is credited to Anselm of Canterbury. There's some debate as to whether or not Anselm himself actually wrote it but it is credited to Anselm of Canterbury, and it comes from the 11th or maybe 12th century. And it is a word of instruction given to someone who is trying to comfort a man who's about to die. And in fact, the, the title of it is something along the lines of um, comfort to a man about to die, greatly alarmed on account of his sin. 
So we have this young man who's about to die, about to enter into eternity. What comfort can you give him? And actually, the way the treatise is set up is as a series of questions and answers that are given and then expected in response. And it's very pastoral. And you don't necessarily expect that from the medieval period, right? We're here in the 11th century. This is like the middle of the Dark Ages. But listen to these questions and the answers that are to be given to them. It's pretty amazing. Question, do you rejoice, brother, that you are dying in the Christian faith? Answer, I do rejoice. Question, do you confess that you have lived so wickedly that eternal punishment is due to your own merits? Answer, I confess it. Question, do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for you? Answer, I believe it. Do you thank him for his passion and death? Answer, I do thank him. Question, do you believe that you cannot be saved except by his death? Answer, I believe it. And then listen to this. Come then, while life remains in you, in his death alone, place your whole trust. In nothing else, place any trust. To his death, commit yourself wholly with this alone, cover yourself wholly, and this envelop yourself wholly. And if the Lord your God wishes to judge you, say, Lord, between your judgment and me, I present the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. In no other way can I contend with you. And if he shall say that you are a sinner, say, Lord, I interpose the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between my sins and you. And if he shall say that you have deserved condemnation, say, Lord, I set the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between my evil deserving and you and his merits I offer for those which I ought to have, but have not. And if he says that he is angry with you, say, Lord, I set the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between your wrath and me. And when you have completed this, say again, Lord, I set the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between you and me. And then this question, do you hope and believe that not by your own merits, but by the merits of the passion of Jesus Christ, you may attain to everlasting salvation? I do. And then you go on to say, based on that, you can give this man assurance that his eternity is secure. I love that. I love that. That's from the 11th century. This isn't early church fathers anymore. This is middle ages. All right, two more. Bernard. Um, there's been quite a bit of work. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, well-known because of a number of hymns that are attributed to him, including O Sacred Head Now Wounded. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, there's some evidence, strong evidence, that Martin Luther was highly influenced by Bernard, even though Bernard lived 500 years before Luther, and that Luther's own understanding of the imputed righteousness of Christ was in part shaped by reading Bernard. Now, this quote um, comes from Bernard's commentary on Song of Solomon. Bernard did not have a very good hermeneutic when it came to Song of Solomon. He turned Song of Solomon into a love poem between Jesus and the church. That's not the right way to approach Song of Solomon. But in talking about the church and Christ's love for the church, Bernard says some things that from a soteriological perspective are really wonderful. This is one example. As for your righteousness, O Lord, so great is the fragrance it diffuses that you are called not only righteous, but even righteousness itself, the righteousness that makes men righteous. Your power to make men just is measured by your generosity in forgiving. Therefore, the man who through sorrow for sin hungers and thirsts for righteousness... 
Let him trust in the one who changes the sinner into a just man and judged righteous in terms of faith alone, he will have peace with God. That is the Reformation understanding of the gospel. But it comes from the 12th century from Bernard of Clairvaux, 400 years prior to the Reformation. And then our last of these, and again, for most of these men, there's multiple quotes that could be given. I just chose one. John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, just the underlined portion there, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation, and without faith it is impossible to please God. So when we get to Luther and Calvin and the rest, it's not surprising for us to find Luther and Melanchthon and Calvin and Knox and all of these men saying, look, we're not coming up with new stuff. We are teaching that which has been taught by faithful men throughout all of the prior 15 centuries of church history. Now, that does raise a question, and that question is, well, okay, when did the medieval Catholic church go off the rails such that they lost sight of the true gospel? And the answer to that, I have a few slides here, but I'm not going to go through them just for the sake of time. I'll just give you a brief answer. The answer to that is that apostasy is always a process so the question is, well, when did the apostasy get so bad that we reached the point of no return? <laughs> um, I get asked that question a lot. Oh, you teach church history. When did the Catholic church become Catholic? Well, that's a really complex question to try and answer. Uh, but when did it get to the point where the Roman Catholic church's official dogma with regard to salvation, when did it get to the point where they were so far gone that to borrow the language of Matthew, of, excuse me, Mark chapter 7, they had allowed the traditions of men to supersede the word of God. I would argue that that happened in terms of a final sense in the 13th century at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 when the sacramental system was officially dogmatized. Now, the seeds of that corruption go all the way back to, well, there's evidence of it already in the second and third century, but especially in the fourth century when the uh, church, um, or better stated, when the Roman Empire was Christianized under Constantine, a lot of Roman paganism and pagan traditions found their way into the church and over time became Catholic traditions. So the seeds of corruption are very early, but the point of no return, I would argue, takes place in the 13th century. And there would be theologians or historians who would agree with me. Uh, Norm Geisler and Josh Bettencourt in their book, Is Rome the True Church? Choose that same date as sort of the point of no return. <clears throat> it was also uh, 10 years after that, that Thomas Aquinas was born. And Thomas Aquinas was an advocate of that same sort of synergistic so soteriology. We could talk more about Aquinas or Thomas after if you guys want to. Um, but going past these slides just real quickly to a final quote from John Calvin. For the reformers, 
And what's really interesting, by the way, also about that 1215 date is that you already have groups that we would identify as forerunners to the Reformation on the scene prior to 1215, starting with the Waldensian movement in the late 1100s. And so you see sort of this you know, unbroken chain of faithfulness to the gospel with a guy like Bernard in the 12th century and then a guy like Peter Valdo in the 13th century, even in spite of the Roman Catholic Church's final apostasization around the time of the Fourth Lateran Council. All right, we could go into a lot more detail on that, but we won't. John Calvin, final quote of the day, says this, and this is in his preface to his first edition of the Institutes, which was written as an apologetic. The letter that he wrote as the dedicatory letter or the preface was written to King Francis of France, Francis IV of France. And in it, he told the king, look, we're Protestants, but what we're teaching is not something new. It is something that is very old. And here's how Calvin said that. He said, the Roman church unjustly sets the ancient fathers against us as if in them they had supporters of their own impiety. If the contest were to be determined by patristic authority, in other words, if whether or not the gospel we preach is the true gospel were to be determined simply by using pre-Reformation theologians and not using the Bible, the victory or the tide of victory, to put it very modestly, would turn to our side. That's Calvin's very humble way of saying, we would win the debate hands down. He says, now these fathers have written many wise and excellent things, yet the good things these fathers have written, the Roman Catholics either do not notice or misrepresent or pervert. But we do not despise the church fathers. In fact, if it were to our present purpose, I could with no trouble at all prove that the greater part of what we are saying today meets with their approval. And that's just really simply the point I'm trying to make today is that the gospel you preach is a gospel that is affirmed throughout not just the last 500 years of church history, but the entire two millennia of church history. And it all goes back to places like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that we are saved not on the basis of the things that we have done, but we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. That was pretty good. All right. Gentlemen, I'm going to let you go. It's 2.55. We're supposed to be done at 3, so I'm letting you go just a few minutes early. I will stay here if you want to come up and ask me questions. Other than that, thanks for your attention today. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference.